about a year ago, I spent some time studying origin stories and the effect that they have on people around the world. And by that, I don't mean the, uh, the superhero origin stories portrayed in movies like Iron Man and Batman Begins, even though you know, those are good movies, enjoyable. But I'm talking about the stories we tell that shape our families, our organizations, our nations, and they, they give us a sense of our place in the world. So think of, think of Microsoft. They, they boast an origin story similar to that of a lot of tech startups. They began in a garage and became a multi-billion dollar corporation. When that story gets told to Microsoft employees, it gives them a sense of who they are as a company, this creative, hardworking enterprise. A and it gives them a sense of their place in the world, a leading technology company that earned its place on the podium. Think of the United States. We have the Founding Fathers, the Boston Tea Party, John Hancock not realizing that a whole room of people had to sign the document after him trying to, uh, and tried to cover up his mistake by saying that he wanted the King of England to be able to read his signature without glasses. Yeah, it's just so, <laughs> so patriotic. When we retell our national origin stories, we communicate who we are as a country, fiercely independent, rebellious in the face of tyranny, and we communicate our place in the world, an independent nation that is decidedly American, not French, not British, but American. We are used to, to hearing and, and sharing these origin stories, and people in every country and every company, they all tell similar stories because everybody wants to know their place in the world. God used Moses to write the book of Genesis after God rescued the Israelites from slavery, parted the Red Sea, and directed them to the promised land. Like the stories of the Founding Fathers, Genesis serves as an origin story for the people of Israel, helping them find their place in the world. But the book of Genesis is so much more than that, because Genesis doesn't only communicate the Israelites' place in the world, it reveals our place as well. Genesis doesn't just give us the story of Israel. It gives us the story of God, the God, a story that God is writing for the entire world. And as we catch a glimpse of the grand story of God, here's what I hope you'll see this morning. That you are not the center of God's story, but his story abounds with grace and love for you. I'm going to break down the book of Genesis uh, in, in, into three different parts. Part one is creation. Like any good origin story, the book of Genesis begins at the beginning. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we are immediately introduced to the star of the story, the, the central character, the one worth talking about. And it isn't Adam. It isn't Abraham, it isn't Moses, it isn't Britain, it isn't you, it's God. Before the beginning, God was there. A, a God who, who has no origin story because he's eternal. When the beginning was going on, God was there. And, and, and when the beginning was happening, God was there not just as a witness or a, particip a participant in some greater work, but, but he was there as the author of the beginning. God spoke and the earth formed. God spoke and light existed. God spoke and the sun and moon and stars 
took their place, scattered across an expanding universe that still isn't big enough to contain him. And after God created everything that we see and smell and taste and touch, he created his most prized creation. Look with me in verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God made man and woman in his image. He formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and, and breathed into his nostrils his breath, the, the breath of God. And then he performed, he performed surgery on Adam. He removed a rib and he made woman out of that rib. And he created these humans to rule over his creation, to fill the earth and to subdue it. They were his image bearers, his prized creation, the ones chosen to rule over everything else. And by the time that he finished creating man and woman, he looked over all of his creation and made this assessment. Verse 31, chapter 1. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was a paradise, free from pain, sorrow, sin, and death. It was a, a perfect world, ordered and organized to receive his love and proclaim his glory. Then after six days of creating, God rested. Chapter 2, verse 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work. Uh, finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Now, God, God wasn't tired. Remember, remember, he's the eternal, infinitely powerful creator God, right? He, didn't, he doesn't get tired. He rested, meaning he, he ceased from work and enjoyed his perfect creation, as did the rest of his creation. God chose to create, and his infinite creativity and beauty exploded onto the canvas of creation and all of it enjoyed his love and his goodness and reflected back to him glory and praise. Everything was at peace. Everything was a perfect paradise. So God ceased from his work. He rested. And everything was perfect until the second part of the book of Genesis part commonly called the fall. God didn't create human beings as robots, forcing them to, to follow his every whim. Instead, God allowed them to choose whether to follow him or not. He placed a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden, the oasis that he created for them, and, and he told them that they could eat of the fruit of any other tree in the garden except for that one. On the day that they would choose to eat of that tree, they would die. And for a while, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship with God in the paradise that he created. But in Genesis 3, we're introduced to a new character in the story of, of the world, Satan. The enemy of God, an angel God created 
who decided he wanted to be God instead of worship him. And this Satan, disguised as a serpent, did his best to upend God's created order. He tempted Eve, trying to convince her that to eat the fruit from, uh, trying to convince her to eat the fruit from the tree God told them not to eat of. Look with me, chapter 3, verse 1, second half of verse 1. It says this, The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Look down with me in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, so after some prodding and lying and some, some back and forth between the serpent and Eve, eventually the serpent convinced Adam and Eve that the best thing for them would be to eat of the tree. He, he filled their heads with the idea that, that eating from the tree would make them like God. They could supplant him as Lord and, and live as kings and queens of their own lives, doing wh- whatever they wanted instead of what God desired. That sounded good to them. So they rebelled against God, and they ate from that tree. As a consequence of their rebellion, they suffered a separation from God. As sinners, they could no longer stand before a holy God. They, they cowered in fear attempting to hide themselves and their shame. And if they were to die in the rebellion, they would have to spend eternity separated from God in hell. Through their sin, they also introduced pain and death to the world, destruction to God's perfect paradise. All of creation was cursed for their rebellion, reeling from the effects of their sin. Eve would experience pain and sorrow in childbirth. Adam would have to work hard to provide for his family, working against an uncooperative and unruly creation. We see and experience the effects of our sin in the world today. This is the reason for everything that's broken in our planet and in our human relationships. But even as humans hopelessly mangled God's perfect creation with their rebellion, God promised that he would fix it. Look with me in the second half of verse 15 of chapter 3. God says, uh, God, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 15 of chapter 3. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning uh, enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between the serpent's offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God makes a profound statement here. Because God says that there will be a person, an offspring, literally a seed, who will crush God's enemy and make everything right. One who would bring redemption. Which brings us to the rest of Genesis. The rest of the book, chapters uh, chapters, uh, 4 through 50, trace the seed through human history. In the rest of the book, we begin to see God's plan for redemption. God's story, the, the gospel unfold. In chapter 4, following the fall, Adam and Eve have a son. And and if you've read chapter 3, this is a cause for rejoicing, right? Maybe this is the seed. Maybe he's the one who's going to bring redemption. But this son's name was Cain. And if you know anything about the story of Cain and Abel, you know 
that Cain is a murderer. Now, clearly, Cain isn't the seed. When we trace Cain's line seven generations later, we meet Lamech, who married two wives and boasted about murdering people. And so, so clearly, Cain isn't the, the seed. And, and if we're looking at maybe his descendants are going to be the seed, uh, clearly, none of his descendants are also going to bring redemption to the world. Redemption is not coming through the murderer Cain or through his murderous descendants. That's not where redemption is going to come from. And so the, the seed is not going to arise from Cain. But thankfully, God gives Adam and Eve another son named Seth after the death of Abel. After introducing Seth and his line, Genesis comments that the people started calling on the name of the Lord. Look with me at the end of chapter 4, verse 26. To Seth also was born, a, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at the time, people began calling on the name of the Lord. And so Seth might not be the seed, right? He might not be the redeemer, but it's obvious by his effect on the world that the seed is going to come from his line, which is why we get a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, tracing the lineage of Seth all the way to a guy named Noah. The name Noah means rest or relief in Hebrew. So, so maybe this guy is going to be the seed. We find out quickly in chapter 6 that he's not going to be the seed or the redeemer. Because in reality, the world is so sinful and broken by the time that Noah, uh, uh, by the time of Noah, that God decides to send a flood to destroy it. He decides to just to just start over, just a hard reset, and to recreate the world with Noah as the new Adam. So Noah and his family construct a massive boat in which they survive, uh, survive the destructive flood that God brings to wipe out the world, along with uh, ev- a few of every animal on earth. Uh, Noah brings them onto the boat. And once the waters subside, they get out of the boat, and God makes an unbreakable promise called a covenant with Noah. Skip with me to, to chapter 9, verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 9, it says, I establish my covenant with you. This is God speaking to Noah. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the water, uh, by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so God promises that he's never going to flood the entire earth again and do a hard reset on creation. And it's not because things have gotten better. It's not because redemption has been, uh, has been brought by Noah's line. God recognizes in chapter 8, verse 21, he says, uh, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God still knows he, that, that mankind is still evil. God is, has already acknowledged that. He recreated the world with with Noah as a new Adam, but Noah didn't bring redemption. Noah couldn't fix the sin problem of the world, so the world is still evil. Redemption hasn't happened yet. The seed hasn't arrived on the scene, but God is gracious enough to not destroy the entire world by a flood again. Once again, we begin to, to trace the seed from Noah, and the seed can be traced through the line of Noah's son, Shem. So we get another genealogy in chapter 11 from Shem to a guy named Abram. At this point, God spoke to Abram and made him a covenant. Look with me, chapter 12, verse uh, verse 1. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. God said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God promised that he would bless Abram, that he would that Abram and his descendants would experience the fullness of God's blessing. And that gives us images of what Adam and Eve experienced in the, in the perfect paradise of Eden. And, and God, not only that, but God promised to make him a kingdom, a, a place like, like the new garden of Eden. He promised that Abram would be a blessing. And so, so we get all of this imagery that takes us all the way back to the garden of Eden. But, but Abram is not just going to be a blessing to his descendants, but God says that he's going to be a blessing to the nations. What God is saying is that the seed is going to come, the Redeemer is going to come from Abram's descendants, and this seed will rule over God's kingdom and provide redemption for the world. So we're really not sure up to this point. I mean, this is, this is uh, thousands of years uh, after uh, you know, after God has created the world, and God really hasn't given us much more details about what this plan of redemption is going to look like. So here, finally, with Abram, uh, we get a little more detail about what this redemption is going to look like. Where a redeemer is going to come from the line of Abram, and that seed is going to rule over God's kingdom and provide redemption for the world. Then, if we're questioning whether God's really serious about this, God reaffirmed this covenant three more times with Abram, who he later renames Abraham, meaning a father of multitudes. And despite being an old man, Abraham trusted God's promise for a son through whose line redemption would come, and this faith in God's plan, his faith in the gospel, was counted as righteousness. Abraham was declared right in God's eyes. In his old age, Abraham received a son from God named Isaac. This was the promised son. This was the son from whose line would come the seed. And we know that because God reaffirmed his covenant with Isaac. Skip all the way to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26, verse 4, God is talking to Isaac. And this is what God says to Isaac. He says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all the lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he's just repeating that covenant language with Isaac. So it's through the descendants of Isaac that the seed is going to come. Isaac had two sons, Esau the older and Jacob the younger. But the seed didn't pass to the older, Esau. Instead, it passed to the younger, Jacob. Because in Genesis chapter 25, Jacob bought his older brother's birthright from him for some soup. He, he, uh, Esau was hungry. Jacob was making some soup. And uh, Jacob said, I'll, I'll give you some soup, but uh, you got to give me your birthright. And Esau was like, yeah, whatever, just give me some soup. So the New Testament doesn't look favorably on Esau because he gave up his birthright, the chance for the, the redeemer of the world to come through his lineage. He gave that up for some soup. And that's what happened uh, and then in, in Genesis chapter 27, Isaac declared this blessing over Jacob. Uh, in, in chapter 27, uh, verse 28, Isaac sa says to Jacob, May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. 
Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is again that, that covenant language and God is through Isaac is, is prophesying this covenant language over Jacob. Jacob is later renamed Israel. So we know that the redeemer, the seed, is going to come from the line of Israel. Israel, Jacob, he has 12 sons, whose descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel. His favorite son, though, was not the oldest. It was a guy named Joseph. When Joseph Joseph was young, Joseph had a vision of of royalty. Uh, Chapter 37, verse 6, Joseph has this, this vision of royalty. He says to his brothers, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So the, this is a, a, a dream, a vision of royalty for Joseph. And that is important because remember the seed, there's that, that royal imagery for the seed or the redeemer who's going to rule over God's kingdom and be a blessing to the nations that eventually he'll rule over the entire world. And so, uh, so Joseph is having these dreams of royalty. And then his brothers sell him into slavery because they don't like his dreams very much. Uh, but even after being sold into slavery uh, to in, in, in Egypt, he, things get worse, uh, where he's sold, in, sold into slavery, and then he spends some time in an Egyptian prison. But even after all of these things have happened, by God's power, Joseph rose to become second in command in Egypt. And, and what happened uh, while he's second in command of Egypt, he helped Egypt, his family, and people from numerous surrounding nations survive a massive seven-year famine. And so as second-in-command of Egypt, uh, Joseph is a blessing to his family and to the world by protecting them and providing for them during this seven-year famine. We're told this in Genesis chapter 45, verses 7 and 8, about the whole ordeal that Joseph went to and him rising to become second-in-command. This is what Joseph says Chapter 45, verse 7, Joseph tells his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve you as a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Again, those are uh, what we get in Joseph is that he's not the seed, he's not the redeemer, but he looks a lot like him because he has risen up to rule over the nations. He has risen up to be a blessing to the people of the world. And so Joseph isn't the redeemer, but, but the redeemer, the seed, is going to look a lot like Joseph. And for tracing the seed, we would assume that the next descendant who gets the blessing is going to be uh, one of Joseph's kids. And, and we do see a little bit of that with his son Ephraim. But, uh, but j- interestingly enough, as we're tracing the seed in the book of Genesis, uh, Joseph's brother, Judah, gets, uh, gets to play a major role as this kind of side character to the end of the book of Genesis. In fact, he gets his own side quest in chapter 38 where uh, this is, that's involving his own, uh, his own children. And so we, we read this interesting blessing for Joseph's brother, Judah, in chapter 49. Chapter 49, verse 10. 
says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so what we get here is the idea that the, uh, a prophecy being fulfilled a lot later. So later on, what we're going to see in the history of Israel is that Ephraim is going to rule initially, and they're going to rebel against God, but it's from the descendants of Judah that a ruler is going to arise. And so the, the, the true seed, the real redeemer, is going to come from the line of Judah. We, get, uh, we see this play out when King David rises up out of the line of Judah, and, and one of David's descendants is going to ultimately be that redeemer and that seed. And so in case it isn't obvious enough yet, I want to make it crystal clear that the seed that was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3 and that we follow from Genesis 4 all the way through Genesis 50 and throughout the Old Testament, that seed is Jesus. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam through the line of Seth and Noah. Matthew's gospel, he, he starts it with a genealogy that traces Jesus' Jesus's lineage from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah, all the way to the promised king and redeemer Jesus. The story of the first book of the Bible takes place with Jesus as its end. God's work in the world since the time of Adam and Eve looked forward to the redemption he would bring through his son. In a book that, that highlights our sinfulness and brokenness and rebellion against God time and time again, we see God moving through history to make everything right through his son, Jesus. We are not the heroes of the book of Genesis. We're not supposed to, to flip through the pages and, and see ourselves in the good guys in the story. Because we, we all possess a sinful, rebellious nature because of Adam. Which means that like Adam, we all sin and rebel against God. Like the people in Noah's day, we are, we are deserving of destruction. And like God said, even after the flood, our hearts are wicked from our youth. Like the people of the Tower of Babel, which we didn't even get to talk about, but like the people of the Tower of Babel, we have tried time and again to supplant God as ruler and to plant ourselves as the masters of our fate. And like Adam and Eve, because of our rebellion and, and uh, uh, because of our rebellion, we cannot stand before a holy God. And if we die in our rebellion, we will die and spend forever separated from God in hell. If Genesis tells us anything about our place in the world, it reveals a holy, infinite, eternal creator God and reminds us that we are just creatures who are designed to give God glory and honor and praise, and like those before us, we have failed. We've rebelled against God. We can't fix our relationship with God by being a good person. We don't earn our place in God's eternal kingdom by doing enough good things to outweigh the bad. We need redemption. We need a savior. And praise the Lord that he provided one. Maybe some of you this morning don't, don't need the extra reminder about your sinfulness before God. You are more than acquainted with your faults. And the thing you're wondering this morning is, can God love somebody like me? After what I've done, after the number of times that I failed him, can God 
love somebody as broken and dysfunctional and messed up as me. When we look at Genesis, we see that we are all broken, dysfunctional, and messed up as the human race. We are all sinners worthy of condemnation and destruction. But we see a God who is so loving and gracious moments after our rebellion that he promised to send a redeemer for the rebels. God's story doesn't revolve around you and and we're not the stars of the show, but God's work, God's story has always been about bringing redemption to sinners, people that he, he loves despite their rebellion. God's story abounds in grace and love for you. And if you're questioning that, look no further than Jesus, the seed, the redeemer, who gave his life on a cross so that you could be saved. This morning, God is calling you to place your faith in Jesus. He has been working for thousands of years to bring about redemption and salvation. And this morning, you can receive that redemption in Jesus. In just a second, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we sing, if that's you, you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, what I'm going to invite you to do is to come up here to the front. I would love to pray with you, and then we, I would love to talk with you after the service about it, what it means to follow Jesus. We'll also have people in the back. If you don't want to come up here, there will be people in the back while we're singing. If you want to go to the back, and they would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Don't leave here this morning without experiencing the redemption and the love of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us.